Last week, Sam Sokol of Haaretz reported that, quote, Israel's ultra-Orthodox parties on Monday declared war on the Hellenists in the government, looking to upend the country's religious status quo, promising to launch a joint national struggle to preserve the state's Jewish character. What changes are being suggested? And why do these changes make the religious parties so angry? I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. I've never been shy on this podcast about revealing my disdain for religious political parties. In my opinion, they might be the greatest reason for the disrespect towards Torah and Torah Judaism expressed by some people outside of the religious community. While they present themselves as the final line of defense against the annihilation of Torah in the state of Israel, religious political parties, in my opinion, are more often mechalal shem shamayim, groups that instead of saving Torah, have helped orthodoxy to fall into disrepute. As I see it, when Torah is another chip at the political table, Torah won't win. Please don't misunderstand me. I definitely think that there should be religious members of Knesset. My problem isn't religious politicians, but religious political parties. Was the decline of religious political parties into this mess inevitable? I don't know. Perhaps a religious political party could or can exist that can bring honor to God and Torah and Judaism. But I'm convinced that these parties, as they currently exist today, have the opposite effect. And this applies just as much to religious Zionist political parties as to those that are characterized as Haredi. Let's imagine for a minute that every religious political party decided not to run in the next Knesset elections. Do you really think that religion in Israel would suffer? Would all of the existing parties simply legislate away everything Jewish about Israel? Of course not. If there were no religious political parties, millions of religious voters would suddenly be deciding where to cast their votes. The result would be that the secular parties would include religious planks in their platforms in order to attract the massive numbers of religious voters. Whether this is a good or bad thing for Israel is a different question, but there can be no doubt that a lack of religious parties would not mean the end of Israel as a Jewish state or the end of Israel's religious status quo being directed according to the needs of the Orthodox population. But as it stands now, we have religious political parties, and these religious political parties are threatening a war of sorts should any part of the religious status quo be changed. In order to discuss what the government would like to do, what the religious parties want instead, and what might actually happen and what probably won't, I spoke to Sam Sokol, the Haaretz reporter whose article I quoted a few minutes ago. We'll get to that conversation in just a minute. First, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum page on Facebook and join and participate in The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. We have some fantastic discussions there, so check it out today. I'd also like to ask you to become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, JCH merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. 
It's just a few dollars a month, and you can cancel at any time. We're looking forward to your joining the Jewish Coffee House team. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to reach hundreds or even thousands of listeners? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or record and relax and let us do the heavy lifting, JCH Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let us help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com, that's jchpodcast.com, to learn more and to sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage your audience today. Just before we get to the interview with Sam Sokol, I'd like to mention that in between the day we conducted the interview and the day that we're releasing this podcast, the news broke that the Kotel Compromise, that is, the plan to open an area for egalitarian prayer near but not touching the current Kotel Plaza, was shelved indefinitely by Prime Minister Bennett and Religious Affairs Minister Matan Kahana. I think that I need to dedicate an episode to discussing the various aspects of the Kotel plan. I'd like to have two experts, perhaps two Orthodox rabbis, explain the two sides from an Orthodox perspective. If you have an idea of a scholar who'd be willing to discuss one side or the other, both from halachic and sociological perspectives, please write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Sam Sokol is a reporter for Haaretz. He was previously a correspondent at the Jerusalem Post and has reported for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, the Israel Broadcasting Authority, and the Times of Israel. He is the author of Putin's Hybrid War and the Jews. Sam Sokol, welcome to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thanks for having me. You wrote a front-page article in Haaretz on December 7th with the headline, Haredi parties declare war on government's religious reforms. Could you tell me what religious reforms are being considered by the Bennett government? Well, the, uh, the Bennett government has been pushing reforms on a number of fronts. Uh, the, some of the ones that have been most controversial within the, uh, you know, the Haredi community have been reforms to kashrut and to conversion. In both cases, the Bennett government wants to open up the authority to engage in oversight on these issues to outside bodies, essentially to break up the monopoly of the rabbinate. So in the case of uh, Kashrut, uh, religious affairs, uh, Minister Matan Kahana is pushing an outline which would change uh, the way that uh, Kashrut is overseen. The current system, uh, which has been called very inefficient and corrupt by the state comptroller, basically has the uh, chief rabbinate overseeing everything. And even if you have an outside Hekshir, like uh, the Badatse Dachaidit or Rabbanate Sohar, in order to legally call yourself kosher, you need to also have uh, first the Tuda from the Rabbanut. And under the reform from, uh, from uh, Kahana, what would basically happen is rather than being a certifying body, the rabbinate would be a supervisory body. So they would basically open it up to any Orthodox rabbi. And this is still limiting everything within orthodoxy, but any orthodox rabbi would basically be able to open up a certifying organization the way it works in Europe or the U.S. What does it mean then that the rabbinate would be a supervising authority? What would that job entail for them? It would basically be the private uh, certifiers would say, here's a written list of our standards. This is what the criteria that a restaurant or manufacturer needs to meet in order to get our stamp of approval. And the, what the Rabbanut would do would be, think of it sort of as the uh, Security and Exchange, Securities and Exchange Commission you know, for Kashrut. They would have oversight uh, responsibility to 
uh, check in on the pride of its certification bodies to see if they're meeting their own standards. It's a little more complicated than that. There's a two track system where you can still go with the rabbit if you want rather than a private group, but that's the essence. That's what people are objecting to. Regarding the issue of conversions, again, this is opening it up and breaking the rabbinate monopoly, but it's not opening it up to non-Orthodox groups, which is something that the the Haredi politicians and leaders are basically saying, no, this opens it up to reform conservative. Basically, it says, under the rules, right now, every city has a uh, city rabbi. It's a government employee. It's an Orthodox rabbi. And... This is basically saying any city-level rabbi who's the official rabbi of a city will be allowed to open up his own conversion courts. So rather than going through centralized conversion courts at the chief rabbinate or through the uh, conversion system that's run through the army, where the IDF has a parallel state-controlled uh, conversion system, any rabbi, whether they're you know very hard right or very liberal within orthodoxy uh, will be able to convene their own conversion court. And the rabbinate's uh, conversions have become very, very strict, you know, in recent decades and have tended more to the Khumra than to the Kula. So what's going on is by opening it up to orthodox rabbis who are not members of the Haredi community you'll have, or who disagree with the mainstream Haredi view, you could have people like, uh, Rav, uh, Rav Stav from Sohar doing conversions. He's the chief rabbi of Shoham. Or you could have... Uh, rabbi know, Riskin could do conversions. Rabbi Riskin could do conversions. And there's a former uh, Shasemke, uh, Amsalem, uh, who broke with the party a number of years back because of issues related to conversion. And what he's been arguing for a long time is that when you have people who are what's called Mizera Yisrael from Jewish ancestry, even if they're not halakhically Jewish. Like someone with a Jewish father. Yeah, that the halacha, if you look back to the Rishonim, basically says that you're, in order to bring them back to the Jewish people, uh, there are various kulas you can and should use uh, to make sure that there's not problems with intermarriage, and that sometimes by being mekel, you're being machmir. And it's sort of that argument over what's the best way to handle a large population, which is ethnically, but not halakhically Jewish. And, you know, each side is saying, you know, we're, we think this is the best thing to do. The, the, the Haredi uh, sort of pushback is saying, if it opens up to different groups with different standards, even if they're Orthodox, it'll be a free for all, and we'll split into two incompatible nations. Then and let me ask a question this, about that. There, there's yeah. so much to unpack over here, both regarding Kashrut and regarding conversions. You've already begun to explain, but what exactly are the Haredi political parties so threatened by? And the reason I ask is the following. In the past, the rabbinate was not controlled by the Haredim, and yet at the same time, this policy that they were in charge of conversions was in place and the nation didn't fall apart. The fact is that now the chief rabbinate is controlled largely, though not exclusively, by candidates chosen by the Haredi parties. At the same time, Israel went on for 40 plus years without that being the case. What's going on? Well, in brief, what, what's going on now, it, it's twofold. One is there, the Haredim have long had a monopoly on decision-making regarding issues of religion and state, especially uh, during the Netanyahu years. And so what's happening now is that control is being broken. 
uh, their grip on levers of power it has been loosened. So on the one hand, there is just a, a legitimate feeling among that members of that community that if they're not in control, things will, you know, it's a slippery slope. And next thing you know, the Jewish character of the state is eroded. On the other hand, it's also a community lashing out because of this feeling of a, of a loss of control, one, because of the issues, but two, because if they give up on anything, they, they see it as having a snowball effect. And that means that other things that are hot button issues for them will also, so they'll begin to sort of lose politically on. So a couple of examples that we've seen recently were uh, cuts to uh, daycare allowances and rising taxes on uh, disposable cutlery plates, et cetera, which, uh, you know, disproportionately affected the Chalidim. So the worry on, on their part is that they're going to start losing control over issues that directly affect them, financial budgets that they depend on, subsidies to yeshivas, uh, ex, uh, you know, exemptions from the draft. Uh, one especially important issue to the rabbis, and not necessarily to every single man on the street, what we, we've seen in the last few years that there's been increasing uptake of internet and smartphone usage in the Haredi community. Uh, there's the Haredi news sites that are not controlled by the rabbis. There's all sorts of new ways of getting information. And the rabbis have been pushing against this really hard, trying to maintain this monopoly on information, saying you have to have a kosher phone. You have to have a kosher phone. One of these, you know, these old candy bar style or flip phone flip style phones, yeah, phones sure. that don't get that don't get internet. And while anyone using a, a regular phone in Israel, regular cell phone, uh, can, according to the law, switch providers, keep their number. If you have a kosher phone, there's a certain block of numbers blocked out for that. And you're not allowed, even though legally they're required to let you switch phones, they don't do that for kosher phone people. So you can be identified and ostracized if you don't have a kosher phone. So last week- Is that legal? Of, it's uh, absolutely not legal. And last week, uh, a number of Haredi leaders met with the communications minister because he said, this isn't legal. It's completely against the law. There's a monopoly on kosher phones. There's one firm that controls it and has deals with all the car uh, carriers. And the kosher phones, if you have it, there are sex abuse hotlines that are blocked. There are social services that are blocked. It's very opaque. It's a monopoly. And, it's in and these people have engaged in really sort of uh, bullying tactics you know, shaking down stores, uh, et cetera. And it's, you know, a captive audience. So the government wants to break that up and say, listen, Haredim have the same rights for phones as everyone else. The rabbis are going, uh, you know, this is unacceptable. You're doing this to us. It loosens our control in the community. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they're framing it as, you know, it's going to be horrible spiritually. But it's really a lot of it's about control. In fact, one rabbi uh, who was at the meeting, my colleague Anshel Pfeffer uh, reported this in a column uh, a few days ago, one senior Haredi rabbi at the meeting with the communication minister said, for us, allowing our people to have access to non-kosher phones is worse than the Holocaust. Hmm. Rather comparison. Yeah. Um, this sounds like a very big issue. In fact, I know we don't have that much time, so I think maybe I'll have you back again to talk about this communications issue because that is its own podcast. I have to ask one question, though, before we go on that issue. You said they yeah. have a sort of shakedown. Who is they? Who is they who is controlling these, okay. these providers? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I should have been more clear. Uh, there's a rabbinical uh, committee for purity and communications. It's basically there's one guy who basically runs a lot of this behind the scenes. 
uh, we had an expose in Haaretz a while back about this, about how you know one man got control over half a million Israeli cell phones. But this committee, which is backed by the major rab- uh, rabbis, the yeshiva deans, the, the Roshe Yeshiva, you know, the Gedole Yisrael, the members of the you know rabbinical committees, all the Haredi parties, uh, and the, the big Hasidic rabbis, you know, this committee basically is the one that negotiates with all of the cell phone providers and which gives its, uh, you know, its hex share, its st- kosher stamp of approval to to phones. And if you don't have a phone with, you know, sort of a uh, blocked out Haredi kosher phone number and that has the, their stamp, their, their two dot, like their OU, their version of the OU on the phone, then your kids won't get accepted to the right schools. If you call from another number, you know, people can know if you have a kosher phone or not. In fact, that's I mean, why- They provide this information to people that can make your life miserable. And what happened is this this committee, you know, has been alleged to have, there's been videos that have been uh, circulated by reporters showing people going into stores and basically saying, if you don't work with these people, we'll have, uh, you know, protests outside your business, will ruin your business. There was a video that this this committee basically, you know, controls the entire kosher phone industry. Uh, it's basically a monopoly. There was actually a video that was making the rounds on uh, Twitter being shared by uh, Haredi journalists the other the other month, showing a uh, Haredi uh, young man walking into a store to buy a uh, cell phone, and when it when uh, an older Haredi man, this uh, old man, long white beard, uh, looks you know looks like your Zaidi, sees that he's buying this phone, and he goes, "There's no two on that," and he physically attacks him, and that he had to be they had to drag this old man off him and physically separate them because he physically attacked him for that. In fact. I saw near my house the other day a poster saying, you know, if you see someone and you live in a kosher phone, I do. yeah, it's, uh, it was in the middle of the shopping center uh, saying, if you see someone buying a, a non-kosher phone, you have to intervene and speak to them. And what was funny, though, is down the block from there, uh, there was another poster, a fundraising poster from, from Chabad saying, if you donate to us, we'll put you in a raffle to win an iPhone 13 because... <laughs> You know, uh, Chabad embraces technology. In fact, I once asked a Chabad rabbi that I know what he thought about the anti-phone stuff. And instead of answering, he just pulled his iPhone out of his pocket and broke down laughing. <laughs> okay. Uh, but even within the, the communities that are against it, I know a, uh, a Rosh Kolel, uh, in who's a very hardcore Litvak, who has a kosher phone, but in his other pocket, he keeps an Android phone. And there are many in the community who are doing that, and that frightens leadership. That's fascinating, and there's so much to talk about. Let me just ask you a few questions, though, because... Yes, of course. What you just said now about the kosher phone in one pocket and the iPhone or the Android phone in the other pocket makes me wonder how much, going back to our issue of the Haredi political parties protesting these reforms, how much those Haredi political parties are reflective of what goes on on the larger Haredi street. In different terms, are the Haredi political parties taking their lead from the uh, decisions and attitudes of people in the Haredi community, or are they influencing those attitudes, or are they completely separate? You know what? I think it's it's a little bit of, of both. Look, they reflect the will of the rabbinic leadership, and the rabbinic leadership both leads and follows, meaning a lot of times what the rabbis say you know, lags behind what people are thinking, what people are doing. And the Haredi parties aren't very democratic. Uh, 
a lot of the secular parties aren't either. You know, there's no primaries. Some parties in Israel have primaries, some don't. It's not a religious secular thing, but the Haredi parties don't have primaries. They have rabbinical bodies that choose. And a lot of times rabbis sign on to things because other rabbis do, or because they don't want to be seen as less from sometimes rabbis, uh, the rabbis, uh, we've seen a change over the last century where instead of communal leaders being, you know, the, the, the wealthy or the, just the town rabbi, communal leaders become the yeshiva deans uh, rather than pulpit rabbis. What that has done has created a shift where the leaders know less and less about how things work, you know, outside the cloistered walls of, of their yeshivas. So, you know, I think there's definitely sort of a breakdown between the man on the street and the leadership, but I don't think it's a very, you know, stark breakdown. There's still a lot of respect for the leadership among Haredim, even if they're doing things the, rab- the, the rabbis don't approve of. It's, you know, it's it's a that's a large sociological issue. I, I would, yeah. you know, I, I would say bring in, you know, some expert from a university. You could probably talk for two days straight on this. So you don't want to give me a 30 second answer on a podcast. Uh, I understand. That. I, wish okay. I, I wish I could. I, <laughs> I just don't think it would be fair to the situation. Understood. Getting back to the proposed changes, you mentioned before that any change in the conversion law would still involve only Orthodox rabbis performing conversions. In your article, you did say that there is a real fear that this will eventually lead to acceptance of conservative and reform conversions. Where does that fear come from? Is there reality to it? What are they thinking in terms of that particular concern? Look, I don't think that reform and conservative conversions are politically ever going to be feasible, at least within, you know, the foreseeable future, especially look the, with changing demographics, the country is becoming increasingly orthodox. And I just don't see that happening. What we do have, they, legally, there is reform and conservative conversion for the purposes of citizenship, for the law of return, but not for being considered halakhically Jewish for marriage and divorce through the rabbinate. But the, the, the reason that reform conservative you know, conversion is accepted, at least in terms of citizenship, is because of a decision by the high court. And I think the Haredi community is sort of worried, you know, give them an opening and they'll, you know, push uh, for more recognition, especially because this opening up of conversion is being accompanied by calls by, you know, some people within the coalition, some, some uh, government ministers to recognize non-Orthodox streams. Again, I don't think this is going to happen. It's not politically feasible in the current political landscape in Israel. Part of that is is probably a real fear, but a lot of that it probably is hyperbole as well, because you're not going to excite your your community to get them out into the streets if you go, that guy with the long payas who wears a white, uh, you know, a white knitted kippah instead of a, a black velvet one can convert too. People are going to go, okay, who cares? But right. as soon as you mention reform, you know, that's the... Those are the magic words, fighting words. Look, ref- reform has been the boogeyman in the Haredi community for, you know, longer than neither of us have been alive. It's And regardless of the fact that it hasn't been, so to speak, a threat to to the integrity of the Orthodox community for, it, you know, for a very long time, it's not like, you know, people are... It's not like we're in, you know, early 20th century Germany and people are just going in droves from late 19th century, early 20th century to or 1950s America. Or and 1950s people are leaving America. orthodoxy That's and becoming conservative. One, I spoke to one Haredi lawmaker the other day who said something, and 
uh, and he was making a totally different point, but something he said sort of, I feel, makes my point for me, which is he said, the average Israeli is Orthodox. Even if they don't observe anything, the shul that they don't go to is Orthodox. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so reform really isn't a threat to, to Orthodoxy in, in contemporary Israel, but it makes for a good uh, straw man for making an argument. Speaking of straw men, I want to ask this question because I didn't understand this at all. Bitsalo Smotrich, who is the head yeah. of the of what's called the Religious Zionist Party, Hatzionut Hadatit, he is part of this group, apparently, according to your article, protesting the proposed changes. At the same time, Moshe Gafni, who is the head of the United Torah Judaism Party, apparently condemned the fact that under the proposed changes, quote-unquote, Zionist yeshivas, or the heads of Zionist yeshivas, would be allowed to perform conversions. How does Bitsalo Smotrich, who obviously is a product of Zionist yeshivas and believes in Zionist yeshivas, align himself in condemning the same thing? It makes no sense to me. I realize politics doesn't have to make sense, but can you explain why he's part of this group? I honestly don't know. In terms of that statement, I don't know how he squares that circle. I really don't. I think what it is is he represents a much more conservative wing of of, uh, Zionist orthodoxy, of the Dati Lumi community, and... He's also very much against Bennett. I think this has as much to do with rallying his basing going against Bennett as anything else. But also, again, he represents a very conservative wing of, of modern orthodoxy. So, you know, it's not like there's this distinction. There's Haredi and there's Datilomi. Mm-hmm. A lot of people speak about it as if we're, it's totally different. And they are very, very different. But at the same time, it's not a binary because it's, it's a spectrum that one flows into the other. Uh, you have very modern Haredim and you have very hard right uh, Datilumi. So while the mainstream Haredi and the mainstream Datilumi are as different as possible, they do flow into each other. And he sort of fits in in some ways within that gray uh, boundary area. What's the likelihood that the proposed changes actually become law? Is it on the verge of happening or is it really just a distant boogeyman that's not really going to take place? Regarding conversion, that's really up in the air. I couldn't even say. Regarding Kashrut, if I recall correctly, uh, budgeting for the reforms has already passed in in this in the recently passed state budget, and the rabbinate is going to fight tooth and nail. And its implementation, in a large part, will depend on the rabbinate. But in terms of actually being implemented on po- as policy on the on the ministerial level, that it's definitely going ahead. Mm-hmm. It's this is going to happen. Really. Okay. Uh, other other reforms uh, that they're they're asking for public transportation on Shabbat. I don't think that has a chance, or at least widespread a widespread chance. In play, you know, in more in the predominantly secular areas, we've already seen that starting to happen on a municipal level. But overall, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, whether or not we're going to reach some sort of new reform on uh, you know on enlistment of yeshiva students, I, I I couldn't even say. They've been working on that for decades. But kashrut will definitely go ahead. Sam, one of the dangers of my interviewing a journalist like yourself is that you have deadlines, so I know you have to go. Let me ask one last question. If Haredi parties do indeed go ahead with their threats to declare war on these reforms, what does that mean? They're not in the government, so they're not going to topple the government in any active way. What do they mean by declare war? What can they do? Well, they're still uh, sort of divided on that. At the meeting that they held between uh, the lawmakers from Shas and UTJ, a number of ideas were floated and... You know, there's disagreement about what they should do. One one lawmaker from UTJ said that they should 
start boycotting companies. He didn't say which or by which criteria, but take the spending power of their community and boycott companies to bankrupt them, requiring bailouts for the government, basically economic blackmail. Uh, what the Shah what companies? I spoke which, to, co- which companies? He didn't. It wasn't specified, but the Shah's MK I spoke to basically said, no, I don't agree with that. Uh, they basically punted and said, we're going to have our rabbinic overseers, the, the councils for each of the parties, speak together and come up with policy. One thing that's been floated is having a million-man march. I would assume that leading up to that, if they did, if I don't know how many people actually get, but they want to have mega rallies. I'm assuming leading up to that, there'll be smaller ones. When there were issues with the draft, for instance, we've seen lots of protests blocking roads, fighting with cops. I think it's just going to end up as a protest campaign and a lot of propaganda. But, you know, it, it really depends. But I, I think, I think you know, there's a real fear in the community. One, that these reforms will change the uh, status quo religiously. But two, that they're losing their power. So they're going to do anything they can to to mobilize their base. Okay. Well, Sam Sokol of Haaretz, thank you very much for joining me today. And I appreciate your insights. Thank you for having me. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.